Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Flor-Cruz. North Korea has long resisted foreign influence, aggressively guarding its borders and ruthlessly controlling information coming in and out of the country. But have they managed to keep their country free from the great intruder of 2020, the deadly coronavirus? The country reportedly took quick action early to ban foreign visitors and impose long quarantines, recognizing the risk of an epidemic. But with widespread poverty and a weak public health system, even North Korean officials have acknowledged that a major outbreak would be disastrous for the country. In the midst of this came North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's unexplained disappearance for nearly three weeks and sudden reappearance. Should Kim at some point no longer be able to lead? Who, if anyone, is next in line? And how can we assess the stability of the nation's leadership and its public health vulnerability? In this episode of Asia In-Depth, Asia Society Policy Institute Vice President for International Security and Diplomacy Daniel Russell explores these questions with two experts on North Korea. Harvard Medical School scholar Dr. Ki B. Park, who leads an effort to assist doctors in North Korea, and Brookings Institute senior fellow Dr. Jung H. Pak, an author and former deputy national intelligence officer at the National Intelligence Council. Russell begins the conversation by discussing the recent conflicting reports on Kim Jong-un's health. I think we just have to start with the issue that has had everybody in a, in a tizzy for the last uh, couple of weeks, namely Kim Jong-un's disappearance. Um, and I'll, I'll do just a quick refresh. You know, he was last cited in public when he attended uh, the major political meeting of the year in Pyongyang on April 11. That's the S- the Supreme People's Assembly. Uh, but then he seemed to drop out of sight. There was a missile test on the 14th. That's the sort of thing that Kim Jong-un uh, typically has liked to show up for. He skipped that. Much more significant was the fact that he was absent from the uh, important Day of the Sun uh, anniversary event the next day. That's the big national holiday marking the birthday of Grandpa Kim Il-sung, the person that Kim Jong-un has really modeled his own political image on. Uh, so it was conspicuous. And then later on, he missed another big deal celebration on the 25th, the uh, anniversary of the uh, Korean uh, People's Army. Uh, and in the meantime, a South Korean defector news site uh, published a report claiming that uh, Kim had had a cardiovascular event or procedure that opened up a floodgate of rumors. He's dead, he's gravely ill, and so on. But then, lo and behold, on May 1st, the official North Korean news agency issued a report that he had made an inspection at a fertilizer plant, um, and then posted some photos of Kim to prove it. So, Keith, I mean, since you're a physician, let me just start with you. Now, I'm kind of assuming that you don't have, uh, you know, you're aligned straight into Kim's medical records, um, although if I'm wrong, we're all ears. But like, the Kim family has a history of heart disease, right? Uh, just looking at the, you know, the Supreme Leader, you know, kind of shudder to think what Kim Jong-un's BMI, you know, might look like. So what, if anything, do we know, can we know, can we reasonably guess about Kim's physical condition? What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, for, it's clear, right? He does have elevated risk factors. I mean, he's got family history, his body habitus, and he smokes and apparently drinks heavily. These are all adding to the risks. But, you know, uh, and I don't have a direct line into, you know, his medical records. And North Koreans are masters at controlling information and, 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 and managing it. And what we don't know is what we don't know. I mean, this, this news, uh, the Daily NK news piece, in Korean, they described the, the, you know, the story as that the, the, the leader had a procedure. Shisul was the Korean word that they used. Well, the next day, they published the English version, and they translated that to an operation, a, a surgery, susul, right? So, so, so that's a huge difference. Once a procedure, a stent, something like that, you go home the next day or two days later. But the other one, susul, as an operation, which is a, an incision with suturing and, you know, all kinds of uh, big, big production. So uh, that little translation led to a lot of speculation. At the end of the day, uh, we, we only know what the North Korean government want, really wants us to know. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's all I can say. Well, I mean, it was also that- a global game of telephone too, right? Um, it was from North Korea to South Korea to the U.S. to Europe to TMZ to, you know, to Reuters and, and all of, you know, it, it went all ricocheted all of, across the globe uh, with these little nuggets of, you know, some probably have some truth in them, but, uh, you know, in this global game of telephone, a lot of it got distorted and, you know, it's so that it's really hard to decipher what the actual truth is. Right. Well, one of the sort of, uh, reverberations was the speculation that uh, Kim Jong-un may have uh, come down with the coronavirus uh, and that accounted for his uh, absence. Key, how, how unlikely or, or plausible does that strike you? Well, they, they do have uh, diagnostic capabilities if they wanted to test someone and to confirm, but once again, we don't know. Uh, total speculation. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, not knowing and total speculation are um, two concepts that are permanently linked to uh, to North Korea, I'm afraid. But you would have a sense of kind of what sort of medical care Kim Jong-un would get. Um, and, you know, also for, for, an, for the elites or certainly, you know, for the leader himself, um, what kind of you know, what kind of role might uh, foreign doctors play? Right. So there was a, a situation where I think the Kim Jong-il uh, had a stroke and there was a story about a French neurosurgeon traveling to North Korea for that. And I think that's, that's the jury's still out on that, whether that actually happened or not. Uh, there's some, some conflicting reports and, and changing the story. Yeah, and then I, I want to go back to the story again, because when I first read it, they talked about a clinic in Hyangsan, small town outside of Pyongyang, where he had a cardiovascular procedure. And I'm like, um, so to, to do that, even if you to put in a stent, for instance, you need to have a full suite of uh, live x-ray machines. We call it angiography rooms. And you need to also have backup in case the procedure goes wrong to do an open operation. I can't imagine that they would try something like that. Uh, first, you have to do an angiogram, uh, a diagnostic catheterization to see where the vessel's blocked, and then have the, 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 the technology and the equipment and the supplies to actually deploy a stent 
And then when I read the story that they did this in a small clinic in Hyangsan, uh, North Korea, I just, I just found that to be hard to believe. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. What, what, what did you think, John? Well, <laughs> just... You know, the, the, the thing about um, all of the rumors that were going around is that they're entirely plausible, you know, but, but you're the one, you know, who could point out that it's, it would be impossible to do that kind of major surgery in this little, um, in, in this little clinic. Um, but, you know, there are, lots of, there are lots of stories about COVID plausible, right? Um, heart disease or some sort of surgical incident, um, also very plausible given what we know and what we can see about Kim's um, physical uh, well-being. Um, the, uh, the rumors about a team of Chinese doctors going in, I, you know, they, they all have some element of plausibility, but, you know, they all point in different directions. And that's something that I, you know, it, for me, this latest incident, you know, coming out, uh, the stories about Kim's absence coming out right when the book was coming out, um, it, you know, I start the book with um, how you have all these different pieces of the puzzle, but you don't even know if they belong to the same puzzle. Um, and, and, and this is a prime example of how, of how um, difficult it is, um, the, the level of fragmentary information that you can have on North Korea that makes it really difficult to see inside or to glean any, with any specificity or, uh, or a high confidence level on, on what the actual truth is. Um, and this is something Dr. Park has, has also pointed out about, we just can't, we just don't have much insight into Kim's actual or leader, a top leader's health, which is not unusual for North Korea, but uh, it's, it's usual. It's, it's not uh, uncommon in other countries as well. Well, Jung, I want to come back to that, but you know, the metaphor of a, of a puzzle or a Rubik's cube is one that crops up uh, a couple of places in your book. And I, I found it a very kind of helpful frame uh, for thinking about what it was that, you did for a living as an analyst, but also uh, what we're all trying to do with so many different dimensions of uh, North Korea. Now, there are two other theories uh, about Kim's disappearance that I favor, of course. One is that uh, this was really a, a book publication stunt that you and the North Koreans <laughs> cooked up just to raise even more buzz about uh, your book. The timing is highly, highly suspect. Um, the other is that uh, Kim Jong-un, who we all know is a huge uh, Michael Jordan basketball fan, uh, was holed up uh, in a villa with Dennis Rodman watching uh, The Last Dance, um, <laughs> binge watching it on Netflix or something. But you know, but, Dennis Rodman said that he didn't know where Kim was or how he was doing. <laughs> so yeah. more elaborate than you might think, maybe. Right. But um, one, one thing that was pointed out to me uh, that may or may not uh, meet anything, but in the, you know, in the vein of of, of clues and and random pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, is that, you know, in the Supreme People's Assembly meeting, uh, just, the, you know, the last time Kim was cited, uh, his sister Kim Yo Jong was elevated into the Politburo, and so the, I guess, uh, it raises the question: Was there a clue there? You know, does that, could that mean something? You know, is that some sort of an insurance policy perhaps because uh, they, uh, you know, they knew that Kim Jong-un was say gonna go under the knife or so. I, I, I admit that that's pretty speculative. Um, but, you know, your book mentions Kim's health as one of the many big unknowns for North Korean experts and analysts. but. 
Zhang, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you think we do know about the leader's health and you know, without getting into sources and methods, as they like to say, um, how do we know that kind of stuff about foreign leaders uh, like Kim Jong-un? You know, the way we find out about health um, is by with people who have actually met the person, right? Where you do a, you know, um, where you can assess, you know, either visually or physically um, to see, you know, what kind of, shape this person might be. Um, what the, the effect of, you know, after having shunned, um, uh, having shunned uh, foreign leaders for the first six years of his rule, um, he, Kim Jong-un in the past two years um, has really come out and had multiple summits with regional leaders as well as the U.S. president. Um, and there, um, you know, we could see um, how he was walking without the time delay of the regime media or without the you know, filters of regime media. Um, we can see in real time how he was walking. Um, the, you know, the, we can hear him wheezing. Uh, we can hear him straining to a certain extent um, to walk a short distance. Um, and so you know, I thought if anything out of the summits that at least we could at least observe um, his um, his situation and his condition at those particular mo- moments. Um, but we have to be careful too um, in, in, uh, in extrapolating big um, conclusions from snapshots um, of that particular moment or, or of that particular event. Um, but you know, intelligence analysis and especially North Korea is really difficult because you have to see change over time, see the minuscule um, changes over time um, and what in the, manner of speech or the uh, locations of things or the way uh, who's sitting closer to Kim um, of all things. Um, and so, you know, it takes a, it takes a really careful eye um, as Dr. Park knows about on how to read North Korean to try to glean any sort of uh, uh, insights that we can use for actionable policies. A good friend of mine at the agency, Danny, um, who said, you know, leadership analysis is like um, working for People magazine. <laughs> That you talk to a doctor who knows a doctor about this particular procedure that might, may or may not have been done on some, you know, celebrity. Um, so on health issues specifically, on something as very personal um, as a as a leader's health or any individual's health, you know, that is really one of the big, the biggest black boxes of of uh, analysis, whether it's intel or or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, it, also, it seems like uh, defectors, um, who uh, most of whom still have considerable lines into North Korean society and so on, offer a pretty valuable uh, window into what's going on, including potentially uh, things pertaining to, you know, a crisis of health or another form of crisis affecting the, the leadership. But I noticed that uh, probably the most prominent North Korean defector, Tae Yong-ho, uh, was one of the people absolutely convinced that Kim Jong-un was on death's door. And so it's kind of noteworthy uh, to me that uh, people like that, uh, despite having close lines into uh, North Korea, would uh, get it so, so basically wrong. Um, he apologized for, you know, now that he's an elected member of the National Assembly, you know, subsequently he apologized for 
um, for his um, statements. Um, I mean, I don't know if that was necessary, but I, but I think it goes to the, again, the difficulty of finding out information. Um, and I think we have to, you know, what I remind some people who ask me is that just because it's intelligence or just because it's a defector speaking doesn't mean that it's true um, uh, because sources lie, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, and, um, and it also depends on, you know, when we look at um, sources, we have to figure out their credibility and their access, right? This could be somebody who was near the leader or near the hospital or the clinic, um, but would, would not be a medical professional who would be able to speak in, in detail or have, or be able to filter out the right information from the wrong information in the way that, um, you know, not everybody, not everybody that, uh, who might speak about North Korea's nuclear weapons program would have that technical knowledge to be able to decipher whether one, you know, one is solid fuel or the other is, you know, or liquid fuel ballistic missiles. So um, it, it really depends on um, not just who's, I mean, it depends on who's saying it, but also their access levels uh, and their particular and their very specific access to levels to, of what they're actually talking about. Well, wow, that's a, a good insight and a good cautionary note. Um, I, we got to get to COVID, but I, before we do, I just have to ask, uh, John, I have to ask you um, about the succession. Like, what would have happened if Kim Jong-un had croaked? I mean, um, again, I realize this is the Rubik's Cube, but is there a scenario, a succession scenario that you would find you know, relatively speaking, the most plausible of the, of the possible uh, outcomes? Yeah. Um, so let's assume that he died or was inca incapacitated. Um, I think it also makes a difference whether he, he died immediately or if he's in some sort of prolonged state of incapacitation where there is a lot of ambiguity. So I think the level of ambiguity about what's happening, what's going on with the leader uh, matters um, and how we would assess the, the future scenarios. Um, but I would say that at least in the near term, we would see some uh, inertia, bureaucratic inertia in terms of people continuing to do their jobs, um, people showing up to their offices and showing up to their bases and showing up to their stations and basically going on with their um, with their, you know, with their, with their day-to-day -day activities work. Um, and, and we saw this when Kim disappeared for 40 days back in 2014 uh, with, for what, they, what the regime said was ankle surgery. And, he, and, he, and then he subsequently showed up, uh, you know, he, you remember what he showed up with, you know, with the cane and he was limping. Um, but, you know, in those, 40, in those 40 days, we didn't see massive troop movements or any kind of uh, a sense that something was a ride that would lead to internal collapse. Um, so while I think that there is a resiliency to, um, to North Korea, um, in the near term, I think there'll be some stability. Um, it is in the elite and others' interests for there to be stability in North Korea um, because, uh, you know, because they don't want to disrupt their, their livelihoods and their privileges. Um, but I think in the longer term, if there is a prolonged uh, period of Kim's incapacitation, there's a lot, there would be a lot of questions about who's actually making the decisions. Um, and that's when, as we move forward into the medium to the long term, that we might be able to um, glean um, some hedging, factions developing, um, alliances forming, um, and other activities that we, that we wouldn't see, um, we wouldn't see from the outside or, or that... Um, 
we wouldn't see in the near term. Mm. Interesting. I, w we could go on uh, quite a bit on this topic. It's so interesting. I think there's plenty of evidence uh, that being number two in a dictatorship is a pretty uncomfortable uh, position to occupy, just as Jiangsu Tech. We're going to take a short break here to talk about Asia Society's celebration of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month throughout May. On May 18, writer, director, and producer Alan Yang joins Asia Society to discuss his latest film, Tiger Tail, on Netflix. Later this month, on May 27, author Kathy Park Hong leads a virtual book club conversation about her new book, Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. And there's so much more. To join those conversations or see what else we have going on in celebration of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, check out asiasociety.org APA. That's asiasociety.org APA. Now let's get back to the conversation. Let's turn to the issue of the novel coronavirus. Um, you know, the world now is horribly closing in on four million confirmed cases with well over a quarter million deaths. We know there were hundreds of cases uh, in the Chinese provinces that border directly on North Korea. Uh, we know that there was very extensive air travel, train travel between China and North Korea uh, in December and the first half of January. But North Korea, population of 25 million people, insists that it has had, you know, no, not a single case of COVID-19. So key, you know, as a, again, as a, as a physician, let alone a doctor with so much experience in North Korea, I mean, it seems implausible uh, to a layman, but uh, what's your best guess about what the COVID-19 experience was and what, what have you seen? Yeah, I, I, I can see why people think it's implausible. There's a pattern of that kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, not reporting everything. But in this situation, if you look at it purely from a public health intervention standpoint, uh, North Korea actually started to shut down their borders uh, even before Wuhan was locked down. This was in January 20th, 21st. Flights were stopped. Tourism was stopped almost on a daily basis. And they sealed their borders pretty much you know, towards the end of January. Remember, um, the next country to do a comprehensive border closure, I think, was Italy, which was six weeks later. And this is after they had thousands of deaths in the country. So if you look at pandemics, within the pandemic timeline, early decisions to seal borders and, and contain make a huge difference. So one thing, North Korea did apply it very quickly. But the other thing is that the the threat of the virus entering through the 900-mile border between China and North Korea that I had thought would be very porous. I think maybe it was I overestimated that. The uh, reason is the two provinces that actually border North Korea, they never really had that many cases to begin with. Within, so so one, uh, there are two provinces. There was one 100 cases reported. The other one was 145 cases, one or two deaths each. And both of these provinces went on semi-lockdowns very quickly. So these were controlled. So I think um, for those two reasons, the, the risk of the virus entering into the country was pretty low. I'm not saying it was zero. And the other piece of data point that we want to look at is the, the, the behavior of the North Korean government. 
you know, they, 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 they locked down the borders pretty early. Trade was stopped. These were costly decisions for the government with economic you know, implications. And John can talk a bit more about that. But for them to start relaxing some of these measures indicates a level of confidence and that, an assurance that they're doing what they think is right. So I'm not going to tell you they have or they don't have uh, COVID cases inside North Korea. I think that's debatable. What's not debatable is that the North Koreans feel like they're somewhat have dodged a bullet at this point. But I, I do want to make sure that we, we, we're clear on this. They, they didn't dodge the bullet and they're in the safe. That's not the case. What started as an epidemic in Wuhan is a now full-blown pandemic. And the threat is actually higher now than it was before in some ways. So North Koreans are going to modulate you know, their border policies uh, as they go on. But at the same time, they will need to strengthen their treatment capacities, the medical countermeasures. They don't have enough. Uh, their, their health system is weak. We could talk a little bit about that later. But they're, they're doing both things at the same time, the non-medical countermeasures and medical countermeasures. And I do want to say one thing about this notion that just because North Korea asked for help, uh, that, that sort of discounts the fact that they have no cases, they're, they claim that they have no COVID cases inside North Korea. That's not the case. They're controlling the, uh, the, the borders, but at the same time, they're trying to strengthen their health system. I think that's completely consistent. Mm. Um, so you talked about the countermeasures that North Korea took, um, so strict quarantine protocols and maybe uh, anti-epidemic public information campaign, border closures and so on. And I'm coming away with the impression that uh, those likely were pretty effective. Um, but what kind of unintended consequences uh, would those measures have more broadly for public health in North Korea? They've got, you know, real battle with uh, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. They've got malaria. They've got a lot of other sort of chronic diseases. Um, do, do, you, do you see that uh, being impacted by the, the tough measures? Yeah, so the measures... So there are three parts to the measures. One is the, the travel restrictions, the border, to try to prevent the virus from coming in. The second is mitigation measures to reduce the transmission of virus once it's in the country. And third is strengthening their capacity to treat in case there's an, a surge of cases. Uh, I think the measures that they've taken as far as sealing off the borders, that has a tremendous impact on the economy, as I mentioned. And some of the uh, humanitarian assistance that was trying to get in, uh, for instance, the drugs uh, for tuberculosis, they're on hold. I mean, there are other aids like food program aid, uh, the, the, the shipments. There are a lot of, there are I think, thousands of containers that are currently uh, uh, being held at Italian trying to get into North Korea. And much of that is, uh, is humanitarian assistance. So I think that's impacting the, 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 uh, the, the vulnerable population plus the economy that depended on the border trade between North Korea and China, people that are dependent on that, I think their livelihood is severely impacted. And those things can turn in turn impact their health. That's interesting. Hey, Jung, what does your well-honed spider sense tell you about uh, <laughs> COVID in, in the DPRK? No, I take on board um, Key's comments about how um, the, the risks to North Korea um, would uh, would have been um, 
tamped down by you know some of those measures that North Korea took down early, you know, took uh, put in place early. Um, the fact that there are fewer cases in in uh, in the border regions of China. Um, I think the uh, in terms of um, what's happening, so there's 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 North Korea's measures to uh, prevent the entry of the uh, of the virus of the uh, coronavirus, but then there's also um, so it's not just in uh, external, it's also internal. Where we, we've seen some reports where even domestic travel are, is being hampered um, as a result of trying to prevent people from spreading um, um, spreading within the country. Um, and and in, uh, there's signs of some economic anxiety in Pyongyang um, in terms of panic buying and some hoarding. And, and we saw that, you know, not just, you know, we saw that in our own country. We saw that in South, you know, in South Korea and other parts where people were buying lots of things. Um, and that was, you know, that is usually taken as a sign of this uncertain future and the government's ability to respond to certain things. Um, and, you know, so, so while North Korea's measures, these lockdown measures have uh, probably done a great deal to try to stem the flow of the disease into the country, um, it also, it's, it's also tinged by a lot of the paranoia of, of the regime that it's always had, which is, you know, you, they want to quarantine and disinfect all of the things, the thousands of whatever container ships that are um, at the Chinese ports, um, that they want to, that this paranoia prevents the actual aid from getting in um, to, to help the, that's designed to help the regime. Um, you know, and I agree about, with Key about, um, the, you know, that the regime um, is, uh, is at least um, publicly confident um, that it has done this. And I think it's, it's also political too, in that you want to have and this is not specific to North Korea either, where you want to have the theater of control, um, where you want to make sure and allay fears and assuage fears um, in your domestic population about um, the fact that the government has it under, under control, right? Uh, Kim Jong-un has had various high-level meetings. His officials have had meetings um, about coronavirus. At the last SPA meeting, they talked about increasing the budget um, the, the Pyongyang hospital is also another way that they can publicly tout um, what they're doing, what the regime is doing to prevent uh, this disease from ravaging the country. So, you know, and again, here, it's really, uh, it's hard to decipher what's political and what's prudent and uh, what's paranoid and what's not, um, and what is theater versus what's real. Um, but I do, you know, I think all of that um, to say that I agree with Key, it's not, it's probably not zero, as the regime is saying, um, but that the truth is somewhere, somewhere in between. That said, you know, this is a long-term thing, and I think North Korea recognizes that. The building of the hospital is, is, is the, the most visible recognition of, of the fact that this is not going to go away. Um, but, you know, uh, North Korea also has the benefit of being between China and South Korea, two of the countries that are doing a great job of, of containing the disease. Um, so there's that residual benefit of being uh, in between two countries who are, that are doing pretty uh, well on, on, on coronavirus. Well, I want to come back to a number of those points uh, and whether it was, you know, political or theatrical uh, or otherwise, um, you do have to admit that uh, North Korea and North Korea's leader uh, move very quickly uh, into action and you can do a thought experiment about uh, what the situation in the United States would have uh, been like uh, with, had there been that kind of uh, alacrity in response. 
Well, they, just, that paranoia was, we saw that in 2015 key with the Ebola. It was at 2014 with Ebola where they right. shut down the border, you know, even though Ebola was not anywhere close to North Korea. I mean, that, that goes to the level of, you know, the paranoia about what, what something like that could do to North Korea. Uh, both of you have touched on one of the areas that a lot of people online are interested in, which is the impact of the countermeasures uh, to protect against COVID on North Korea's economy uh, and on uh, Kim Jong-un's economic agenda. So there was both the immediate uh, countermeasures, shutting down uh, the borders, and that has obviously stopped uh, the kind of smuggling or the kind of uh, trade uh, that uh, had been previously underway. There's also the uh, economic consequences of a, of a downturn uh, in China's economy, in the global economy, and so on. Zhang, do you, do you have a, a read on sort of what the after effects on the economic side might be for North Korea? Yeah, um, you know, Kim Jong-un admitted himself back in December at the end of last year that things were not good. Um, and that was a huge change from when he came in with his first speech in 2012, where he said, no, you know, we're not going to have to tighten our belts anymore. Um, but in 2019, at the in December of 2019, he said, we might have to tighten our belts. Um, and so, you know, that's a big delta, I think, in terms of how uh, Kim is, is seeing the economy. Um, they weren't, you know, 2018 was a terrible year for North Korea as a result of some of the, the sectoral sanctions that had been put in place um, and the continued isolation of North Korea. 2019 was, was not great either. Um, but And coronavirus with the lockdowns on trade and smuggling and all of the things that it's going to do for people's ability to generate revenue for themselves for to eke out a, a survival um, is uh, coronavirus comes at a, a, at a terrible time for North Korea. Uh, that affects not just the your average North Korean trying to um, have trade, you know, trade and smuggle um, and other items to put food on their tables, but it also affects the regime's ability to generate revenue for itself um, and to pay off the elite. Um, if the elite are not making money, you know, as a result of coronavirus, then that means less revenue for the regime in terms of loyalty payments. Um, and so across the board, um, coronavirus does uh, big damage to um, uh, across uh, across the all segments of North Korea. Um, but that said, you know, the wealth gap between North Koreans are are huge ever since the market uh, ever since marketization um, and uh, uh, gain momentum in the late 1990s um, and with the public distribution system falling apart um, during the famine. Um, defectors in their memoirs have talked about this wealth gap about of the, of the haves and the have-nots and I could see that um, that kind of e income inequality really deepening uh, because of coronavirus. Mm, interesting. So there could be some strategic ramifications and political ramifications uh, in that respect as well. Well, here's a question uh, that uh, harkens back to something key that uh, you alluded to earlier, which is uh, medical help from overseas. Uh, North Korea has put very strict conditions on what it uh, will accept, what it's asked for. It's wanted supply, medical supplies, but not 
medical people. It rejected an uh, offer of help from uh, the U.S. I know that uh, WHO, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, there are other organizations, and you yourself have been involved in uh, providing uh, medical support and assistance uh, to North Korea more broadly, of course, than just over COVID. Could you give us a sense of kind of what sort of role uh, foreign humanitarian or medical assistance plays in North Korea? Right. So North Korea is not a country that's poor and wishes all donors to come and give as much aid as they can possibly give, right? They're not sort of willing recipient of all aid, and nor do they try to be. You know, they don't reach out to everybody and say, please help us. But there are very rare occasions when they'll reach out externally and say, we need help with something. And typically it comes uh, from, they ask uh, organizations that have long-term relationships with or a UN agency because of the multilateral nature of these agencies or their friends. So in February, uh, mid-February, it's been, uh, it's been now known that they actually reached out to these NGOs, UN agencies, and some of the countries for assistance in dealing with the COVID-19 response. Um, they actually reached out to US NGOs as well, uh, official, uh, you know, direct communications. Um, now they were able to get some of these assistance delivered. It didn't take, you know, it took some time because as you know, the UN Security Council sanctions, there's an exemption process for humanitarian assistance. Now to, uh, to be fair, the Security Council uh, sanctions Committee has uh, introduced new steps to speed up the exemptions process. It's one or two days now. Um, <clears throat> but the fact that you have to ask for assistance in, in, ter- in, you know, in, the, in the face of an international public health emergency makes no sense to me, but that's another uh, issue altogether. But they did ask for help and they were getting some of these assistance. So it's been known now the Chinese uh, sent in diagnostic test kits, the Russians sent in diagnostic test kits, and other supplies went in, uh, in, in sometime in March. And then what they did was turned around to the US NGOs and said, hey, thanks, but I think right now we're okay. It wasn't a flat out rejection. It was just like, you know, we're okay for the time being. And, you know, I get that. They're in negotiations with the US. At least, you know, there's a, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're um, I wouldn't say they're in negotiations right now, but they're, they're, you know, they sat down in multiple summits and they don't want to be, on one hand, taking assistance from the people that actually have to you know, negotiate hard with, hard with. So I think from the U.S. side, they, they prefer not to take assistance if at all possible, and they'd rather take it from their allies, uh, trusted uh, partners. Mm-hmm. Well, here's another question uh, we've gotten. Um, Dr. Park, uh, Jung Park mentioned the wealth gap, uh, the disparity in North Korea. Uh, Key, what about the health gap? Um, Jung also mentioned uh, Pyongyang General Hospital. Uh, that's a gigantic and resource-intensive project uh, underway right now by uh, under the personal supervision of Kim Jong-un. Um, are there, and I've heard there are sort of two North Koreas, Pyongyang, the elites, and uh, the far-flung uh, provinces that uh, have it a lot worse. Uh, what, what, what's your observation having uh, worked and traveled uh, in North Korea? So there's definitely a rural-urban disparity 
in healthcare. I think the best piece of data that we have is the 2017 UNICEF-led multiple indicator cluster survey, and they surveyed all the provinces and Pyongyang. And I'll give you one piece of information, which is the stunting rates, right? These are for children who are short for their age. And if you look at Pyongyang, stunting rate is 20%, but you go to some of the poorer provinces, it's as high as 30%. So there's clearly data to support there's a disparity, uh, at least in health metrics, uh, in between rural and urban. I will tell you, I mean, the Pyongyang Hospital is, is in Pyongyang, obviously. And I've treated patients in uh, Pyongyang University Medical College you know, Hospital. And I've had patients who were actually transferred from some of the outlying provinces and worked up the referral system and to be treated at this uh, central hospital. So there is a referral mechanism. Whether or not there are some barriers there, I don't really know, but I have personally treated patients from these provinces. Um, but there's also a project that I think I should talk about at this point, which has to do with specifically supporting hospital services in the provinces. It's a WHO-led project. Uh, it's to scale up surgical services at the county-level hospitals in one of the provinces, not at the Pyongyang Hospital, and that's going to start sometime this summer. Okay, um, thank you for that. So, Jung, um, an urgent question uh, from uh, YouTube has to do with your expert eye and whether you think that the uh, purported Kim Jong-un that showed up at the fertilizer factory was actually a, a body double. Um, I don't want to send us catapulting back into uh, that sort of crazy telephone game uh, you talked about it at the outset, um, although we're certainly anxious to, to hear your, your diagnosis on body doubles. Um, but the second question has to do with um, what we might expect, both in terms of the sort of uh, the politics uh, post-COVID. Is this something that Kim Jong-un can use uh, to strengthen and bolster his political uh, status, not that it needs a lot of bolstering, apparently, um, you know, his, his success in uh, keeping out COVID uh, helps him politically. But more broadly, you know, you talk in your book about uh, Kim's plan B, uh, return to coercive uh, diplomacy. Um, any sense of what's in store for us uh, in the rest of 2020, this is, after all, a, a U.S. presidential uh, election year. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Um, and thanks for the, the viewer who submitted that question uh, on the body double issue. I get that question a lot. I don't know, um, you know, but I have no reason to uh, not believe um, the, the Kim's pictures at the fertilizer plant. We've seen pictures of that fertilizer plant before. Um, and so um, it's, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not cardboard boxes that were put up there to show that Kim was alive and well, or that, or that those, th this was a body uh, double. Um, and given the fact that um, Kim is so, uh, Kim is so public and so uh, is seen, is he, his presence is, uh, he's omnipresent um, in North Korea that um, I think it would be uh, hard to, uh, it would be hard to put in somebody there who wasn't, that wasn't Kim, given the ubiquity of his facial or his, or his physical presence um, in, in all of the regime media. Um, where do we go from here? Um, you know, I don't know where we're going to go from here, but um, I, I'd say that 
Um, what I worry about is that, um, you know, the, the, the question is, is COVID, is the global economic downturn or what we would expect would be a global, a huge global economic downturn in the, in the coming months and years, um, would, that, uh, would that change Kim's calculus at all? Um, and I'm not sure that it would, um, because I think based on looking at uh, his behavior over the past eight, nine years, um, is that his default position is aggression, um, is to, uh, even, it, even from a position of weakness, to, to lash out, to exert at least the optics of strength and confidence. Um, and that's something that, um, that he might resort to. Um, there are some, you know, the, as far as we can see from analysis of satellite imagery, um, is that uh, North Korea, since since the summits with with the with President Trump, has continued to maintain and even refurbish and renovate uh, various missile and nuclear facilities, so that they're not they're not out of commission. Um, as well as all of these ballistic missile tests in the past, uh, past at least since May of last year, um, are, are designed to improve the capabilities of various uh, ballistic missiles. Um, they're, they're, they're not just in one place, they're mobile, they're more reliable, um, they're more diverse. Um, and so despite the fact that Kim was unable to get sanctions, despite the regime's uh, acknowledgement of some of the economic uh, pain that they're going to be facing and are facing, um, the fact that they're continuing to do this suggests that, um, that, you know, they're, that this is a priority, the, the weapons are a priority and showing strength is a priority. Um, and, you know, Kim watches us as much as we watch him. Um, and, uh, you know, almost certainly he's aware of questions about whether North Korea would be more um, contrite, um, would be uh, more, uh, would be looking inward and not be acting out because, well, of course it would, it would invite Chinese ire or, you know, uh, increase sanctions. Uh, but we've seen in the past that Kim doesn't really, that doesn't really factor into Kim's uh, behavior, outward behavior, uh, because for him, showing strength is as, as important as, uh, as anything else. That's all for this week's episode of Asia in Depth. For more, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And check out past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Michelle Florcruz. See you next time.